From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Larry Brilliant joins us to talk about his new book, Simply Brilliant and the Eradication of Smallpox. So stay tuned here for the Rock Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, we have a very inspiring guest today, uh, Dr. Larry Brillman, a groundbreaking physician, uh, technologist, and philanthropist who has worked with organizations including Google.org, the Skoll Foundation, and the SIVA Foundation. Uh, he has advised uh, four presidents, the UN, the G8, and many other uh, organizations around the world. Dr. Brillman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you've written a very inspiring book, uh, Sometimes Brilliant, uh, under the HarperCollins uh, label. And um, yeah, we're very excited to hear about your story. Um, you know, thumbing through the book, I've seen some interesting pictures of you growing up and your adventures through uh, India. I guess to give us a little context, um, you know, I think a lot of this started uh, with the with the 60s when you grew up. Could you tell us what it was like growing up in the 60s amid all the idealism and sometimes the tumult? Well, first of all, and most importantly, uh, because I grew up in the 60s, I put the word grok in the book. <laughs> but you'll have, to, you'll, have to, you'll have to get it in PDF and search for it because it's, it's, it is, after all, only a four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I grew up uh, at a time when Robert Heinlein and the great science fiction writers, Isaac Asimov, were promising us a kind of magical world in the future. And I grew up at a time when the real world was very tumultuous, as you said. A Nobel laureate, uh, Bob Dylan, was singing, a hard rain's going to fall, and you don't know which way, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the revolution's going to come. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet Martin Luther King when I was, uh, I guess I was... 18. And uh, he came to the University of Michigan. And I was depressed. My father and my grandfather were both, would shortly both be dead. And uh, for some reason, I went out of my dorm room. I had been in my room pretty depressed, um, eating candy and reading superhero comics. And uh, I went to see Martin Luther King in a big, huge auditorium that seated 4,000, but there were only a about a hundred kids that showed up and he said uh, the president of the university was very embarrassed <laughs> but Martin Luther King said uh, that's no worry there'll be more of me to go around you all come on up and be on stage with me <laughs> and we sat around him some of us sitting shyly not even going on stage but many of us sitting around him on the floor and we sat with him for hours and we were never the, the same ever again. He he talked about uh, the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. We've all heard mm -hmm. that quote. Mm -hmm. But what he actually said was that arc 
will not bend towards justice unless you get off your ass and you jump up and you grab the arc and you twist it and you pull it towards justice, which was really inspiring because it said that there was something that all of us could do. We could march for civil rights. We could, again, later march against the war in Vietnam. We could try to live a life that was consonant with the teachings of the great masters, the great teachers in the world, and not be kind of siphoned away by materialism. And I think that was one of the reasons his visit there was one of the reasons that SDS got started, also in Ann Arbor, just shortly afterwards. Not linked, but it was something you could understand that that was the time. But what does SDS stand for? SDS stands for Students for a Democratic Society. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the alphabet soup of acronyms. Uh, SDS and CORE and SNCC and NAACP and SCLC, all these different acronyms that were uh, civil rights organizations or movement organizations. And he was talking about one of these groups, which SDS actually morphed into the Weather Underground, which was a much more violent part of the, the 60s. These were all student groups. It was Right now, you know, in America, we have a huge schism, but it is a schism that is not between parents and children. It is between classes. Uh, in, and in the 60s, that schism was between generations. Many of the young people were excommunicated by their families because they were marching against the war and, against, and for civil rights change. So that was the tumult you're describing that I grew up in. And, um, you know, it led me to go to San Francisco. Uh, and I was hired when I was in medical school by the Office of Equal Health Opportunity, another acronym. We grew up in Asian <laughs> acronyms. And that was a group that was set up by Lyndon Johnson. It was part of the federal government. And its job was to enforce the Civil Rights Act to make sure that African-Americans were not discriminated against. And so uh, medical students were hired to go inspect hospitals for discrimination. And I was one of them. So I was a civil rights specialist. <laughs> and I was sent to Mississippi to look at hospitals and Southern Ohio to look at nursing homes. And then improbably, I was sent to San Francisco in the middle of the summer of love in 1967. And that was not fair to send me to the Summer of Love. I was a, a kid from Detroit, Michigan. I had no I had no resources to, to fight off the temptation, so I yielded. Great. And, and then um, you joined a, a movement of traveling through London uh, on the caravan and into India. Uh, what, what led you to that journey? And did you know where you were going? No, I hardly ever knew where I was going. <laughs> I think that was, <laughs> that was part of being in the 60s. <laughs> I was a, a young doctor. I did my internship at uh, Presbyterian Hospital in San Francisco. It's now called um, California Pacific. And when I was in my internship, a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz Island. And uh, one of the Native Americans, uh, Lakota Sioux Indian, wanted to have her baby born on Indian health land. And there was no water. There was no electricity. The Coast Guard had boats around the island in an embargo. And... Uh, one of the newspaper columnists, Herb Kane, every day was writing, oh my God, is there no doctor willing to go out there and break the Coast Guard embargo and live on the island and help develop, deliver the baby? Is there no doctor? What kind of a place is this? There's no doctor. And I thought that was 
an ad that said, Larry, come live on Alcatraz. And so I went out there and uh, I did break through the embargo with some helpful uh, uh, motorboating from the San Francisco Yacht Club of all places. And I lived on the island until that baby was born. I helped deliver that baby. And then when I came back, the Coast Guard brought me back. Uh, the Coast Guard actually was quite wonderful. They were very happy. They hated having to enforce an embargo against the <laughs> Indians. And when they brought me back to San Francisco, I wound up being on a lot of television shows as an expert on Indian affairs. I had never met an Indian until three weeks earlier. And I certainly didn't know the answer to the question, what do the Indians want? But you were asking how I got on the hippie caravan. It was because after I got off Alcatraz, Warner Brothers saw one of my interviews on television and offered me a job as a uh, young doctor in a movie they were making. I played an, an extra. I had one line, I think, in the whole movie. But I was also the doctor for the caravan and the rock doc for the concerts. And the, the caravan had Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm, Ken Kesey's, some of Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead, the Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd, all these bands. And it was something wonderful and um, quite wonderful for me. I never, never been part of anything like that. And then we, uh, we ended the movie in Canterbury, England, with the Pink Floyd concert. They played Dark Side of the Moon. And then uh, we got two more buses and we drove from uh, England to Kathmandu. And we lived in Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal. And that was, it took us almost two years. That was pretty special. So you essentially quit your job to go on this journey. What job? <laughs> <laughs> so you found, you found your true calling. <laughs> so in your in your book, you describe one of your seminal seminal moments as going to this ashram. What what exactly is an ashram? So an ashram is a monastery. It's a little different. It's a Hindu uh, monastery. Sometimes a Buddhist retreat center is called an ashram also. And this one was in the Himalayas. If you look at a map of India and you see where Nepal and Tibet or China and India all converge, it was right there at that point, the northernmost point of India in the foothills of the Himalayas. And it was wonderful. We studied uh, every religion. We would read the Hindu text, the Ramayana and the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata. We'd study the Buddhist Dhammapada, the Tao Te Ching, the I Ching, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Koran, the Zenda Vesta, the Guru Granth Sahib. I mean, I'm just, these are a lot of words, right? But these are all the holy books mm -hmm. of all the great religions. And we were, it was it was terrific. I loved it. So um, among those books, if you had one that you think, you know, every young kid should read, do you have one in mind? Oh, a, a couple. I mean, for me, the Bhagavad Gita uh, is the amazing manual of how to act and the epics of the world. Um, but the, the Tao Te Ching, I mean, they're all wonderful. They're, you know, I, I, I grew up with the Old Testament. I fell in love with the New Testament. I mean, they're all great. I think that's the key. I mean, to me, the, the, you know, as a scientist, none of these texts that were written hundreds of thousands of years ago look familiar to a 21st century scientific mind. Mm -hmm. But they all feel familiar to a human heart. Right. And there comes the struggle as you try to separate out what we know about molecular biology or astrophysics or how to build roads and airplanes 
but if you if you try to read with the heart and not with the head it's a hard hard thing for a scientist to do and this is a scientific kind of podcast right or <laughs> radio cast <laughs> well and how science and technology affect our daily lives ultimately we want to explore how they affect and are influenced by society I think the key for me and for your listeners is that I I went into that ashram as a scientist, very skeptical. I hated the idea of there being painted idols. I disliked intensely the idea that young Westerners or young anybody would come in and there was a guru and people would touch his feet. I was repelled by the cult-like nature. My wife had already been there. And uh, the scientist in me thought that I was going there as a deprogrammer to extract her from a cult. And at least part of me thought I was on a rescue mission. There was definitely a part of me which was mm -hmm. intrigued. Uh, and after watching this wonderful man uh, named Neem Karoli Baba, who was a fat old man in a blanket. That's the way he looked. Uh, he only owned a blanket. He had no other possessions in the world. And yet the love and the kindness that he had emanated from him in a way that I cannot explain scientifically. And he was able to see, if not the future, he was able to see a direction for me, for my wife, for all the young people who'd come to see him. And if it's any indication, all the older people who'd been with him for 30 or 40 years said that he gave them their direction in life. And, and not just at some broad, ephemeral, ethical way, but in an everyday way, like what job to take and how can you choose between a job that pays a lot of money and one that makes you feel more noble, those kinds of things. He was, uh, he was at once he was a epistemological or ontological guru, but he was also like a neighborhood priest or rabbi or, or cleric uh, in the way that he loved us and took care of us. And so gradually I came to understand that this was a very special place and I was really lucky to be there. And then one day out of the blue, I mean, really out of the blue, I was sitting and meditating. He called me and said that my destiny was to go work for the World Health Organization in New Delhi and help eradicate smallpox, and that this would be God's gift to humanity to lift the burden of one form of suffering, this terrible disease. And let's get real here. Uh, there was no chance I could go work for WHO. I didn't have any other job. WHO only recruited people from NIH or CDC or the Russian or Japanese equivalent. My Japanese boss, Isawa Rita, had been the deputy minister of health, and his brother was the minister of health in, in Japan. That, that's the quality of people who were re recruited. I never had, I didn't think I, I belonged. Or, and, I, and on top of that, I was 15 or 20 years younger than everybody else. And, and after uh, more than a dozen trips, from the mountains down to New Delhi and 10 or 15 hour trip on a train and a bus, walking in there to the UN office after six months, after cutting my beard and getting real pants and a, a jacket and a tie. I was hired and I stayed for 10 years. They had to create initially a job low enough to hire me. And then I stayed and when everybody else was gone, I actually from time to time ran the program. And that's that was something, 150,000 people. We made over 2 billion house calls in India, searching for every case of smallpox. You want to know more about that? The scientist in you wants to know more about that. <laughs> wow, that, that is very inspiring. When you started making these house calls, what, what was your first thoughts? Did you think you would 
realistically reduce smallpox to the extent that it could be managed? Well, I did. I had never seen a case of smallpox. I knew nothing about it. You know, uh, everybody else had been recruited. I say from CDC or NIH, and on my recruitment papers, it said that I was recruited from the Monkey Temple in the Himalayas. <laughs> I'm sure I'm the only UN medical officer in history whose papers say recruited from the monkey temple in the Himalayas. <laughs> um, but uh, Bill Fage, uh, this wonderful man who became the head of CDC and the head of the Carter Center, he took me to see my first case of smallpox. And gradually, these great people, Nicole Grasset, I mentioned Isawa Rita, D.A. Henderson, who's just passed away, who was our, our boss, the chief, uh, they were kind to me. I was the youngest person there, and they gradually taught me about smallpox. They had a lot of patience with me. Uh, I looked crazy. Uh, in fact, when D.A. Henderson interviewed me, years later, when he sent me back to turn off the lights, we had successfully eradicated smallpox. And he wanted me to gather all the records together and archive them for posterity. And I wrote a book about that, another book, The Management of Smallpox Eradication. But he sent me back and I, I got all the files. I saw the interview he did with me 10 years earlier. And I wasn't the same person. But he said, I have today interviewed Larry Brilliant, a nice young American. He says he's a doctor. He doesn't look like one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he wrote, we have no job for him. There is no smallpox program yet. And besides, he appears to have gone native. <laughs> you, you know, you certainly shared some very valuable experiences in solving a global challenge, but there's still many challenges that have to be addressed. Uh, people like me and younger people are interested in solving issues like climate change, uh, hunger, and other diseases. Do you think we'll actually get our act together and truly address these issues? Sure. I mean... I saw thousands of little babies die from smallpox, um, and I also saw the very last case of killer smallpox on Bola Island. And when I saw her, a little girl named Rahima Banu, and when she coughed and the viruses left her body and there were no susceptible people around who could get the disease, that was the end of a chain of transmission that went back 3,000, 5,000, probably 10,000 years. We know Pharaoh Ramses the fifth died of smallpox. So. How could you not be optimistic when you've seen hundreds of little babies die and then you've seen an end to that awful disease? And it was in the middle of the Cold War. And Russians and Americans had 40,000 nuclear weapons pointed at each other, and still we worked together. Moreover, 170 nations sent doctors to work in the smallpox program. And they, if you line them up, they look like the colors of the rainbow. Every religion was represented, every race hundreds of languages. How could I not be optimistic? And I see the same thing happening today in polio eradication. There's only three countries that have polio. There have only been 25 cases all year. I see the same thing happening today in guinea worm eradication. We're down to less than a dozen cases of guinea worm. And for the first time, I see major changes in climate change. The Paris Agreement, the recent agreement to ban these aerosols, the carbon fluorox that, that are in some ways worse than carbon dioxide, the extension of the Montreal Protocol. Mm -hmm. um, yes, in America, we have the most divisive political argument with vitriol and hateful rhetoric. Yes, Brexit means 
a deterioration in the attempt to bring Europe together. Yes, there are centrifugal forces, but there are also centripetal forces bringing us together. And I'm totally optimistic because of your generation. Well, uh, thank you for that optimism. I, I think <laughs> it gives us a little more confidence that you know we will get our head out of the sands and really work together. Being in San Francisco, uh, you live there and I uh, work there uh, part of my time. Uh, you know, we live in a so-called technology bubble where a lot of people like to think that technology is a solution to everything. And we live in an environment where people are motivated by, you know, where their career is going to take them rather than what the eventual outcome is. You know, what advice do you have for students and young people looking for jobs on how they should you know, assess their situation in the world? Well, take a deep breath. It's okay. <laughs> I understand the pressures. I have two children who are that age. My son is working in Silicon Valley. My daughter is working for a, a political revolutionary organization. Both of them are feeling this exact kind of experience in the Bay Area. I would tell people that if I'm honest, and I hope I am, and I look back on my life, the greatest things that happened to me were not the things that I planned for or I agonized over. It wasn't once when I sat down and I said, I'm going to take this job or that job that I was smart enough to choose the right path, despite all the agonizing that I may have done. Of course, I lived in a time that was a little bit more capricious, a little more flippant. For some reason, we felt like we had more space and time. Your generation doesn't feel that way. You feel like every decision that you make is going to close down doors in your career. I don't think it works like that. I think serendipity, chance, and luck and as Woody Allen said, that 99% of life is just showing up. I think you have to show up and come with your best intentions and be prepared for anything. That's when it gets very interesting. If you're honest and you talk to other people my age and you ask them that same question, did the best things in life happen to you because you worried and agonized and made a spreadsheet and planned? Or did they happen because you were open to all the great things that might happen to you? and not so frightened about what could happen to you. I think you'll find that if people are honest, they'll tell you that it, it's mysterious and wonderful sometimes. And I think that when you're young, unfortunately, me too, when I was your age, <laughs> we, 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 didn't, we didn't have that ability. I'll just add one more. And the reason that I feel this way is because in medicine, we have a lot of uh, great diagnostic tools. We've got a lot of scopes. We've got endoscopes proctoscopes, we've got um, gastroscopes, but the most important scope of all is the retrospectoscope, the one that lets you be retrospective. And when I look backwards in time, I see that all those agonizing moments that I spent about my career, they aren't what made the wonderful things that happened to me happen. So my advice would be take a deep breath, keep your sense of humor around. <laughs> you got to have your sense of humor because it's it's a very funny road if you see it that way. Thank you. Uh, that's you know certainly uplifting. I know we're running a little bit out of time here. I'm just curious. Uh, so Bob Dylan recently was awarded the Nobel Prize, but he has been characteristically or uncharacteristically silent about it. Do you think that's his own form of protest about these institutions? Oh, I bet he'll come around. A guy who wrote Slow Train isn't in a hurry. <laughs> Dr. Brilliant, thanks so much for being on the Grok Science Show. 
Well, I love the name. <laughs> oh, thanks. I mean, do, do, you, do your listeners know what it means to grok? I think some of them do. Probably the people in your generation. I'm not sure about my generation because we tend not to read so much. <laughs> well, you should tell them every once in a while over and over again because, you know, I mean, grok means to – exactly the question you're asking me, you know, you're saying <clears> – <throat> How do you know if the path that you're taking is a good path or how do you know, you know, how do you puzzle yourself through all the conflicts of being young? And to grok is sort of to know with your whole body and all the cells of your body and to open yourself up. It, it, it is to, to know in a very powerfully different way than just rationally. It's a great word. It must be one of your favorite words. It's one yeah. of my favorite <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is something that AI has not figured out yet. That's right. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> There's no algorithm for Grok. Maybe there will be. Once again, thank you for your time. I enjoyed this positive discussion. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking to Dr. Larry Brilliant on his new book, Simply Brilliant. Larry has been involved in many philanthropic activities, including Google.org and the Skull Foundation. He's best known for leading the effort that led to the eradication of smallpox. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show, a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook, and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. 